Okay, we uh, return to the uh, the Philippians series, and, and tonight is the the last one. Uh, so, if you find Philippians, and uh, thus far we've got to chapter four. <laughs> what on earth is going on in the corner? Right. <laughs> No, perhaps you ought to do Corinthian and out of all the women. <laughs> right, okay, Philippians, uh, chapter 4, and uh, what we're doing tonight are verses 8 to 23, all right? And um, I think what we'll do, we'll read it all through first. Let's do that, and then we'll break it down into verses. So, um, Philippians chapter 4, starting from verse 8. Finally, brethren, and that would include sistren, whatever is true... Whatever is honourable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is gracious, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, do, and the God of peace will be with you. Do, and the God of peace will be with you. I rejoice in the Lord greatly, now that at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned, but had no opportunity. Not that I complain of want, for I've learned in whatever state I am to be content. I know how to be abased, and I know how to abound. In any and all circumstances, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and want. I can do all things in him who strengthens me. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving, except you only. For even in Thessalonica you sent me help once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit which increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am filled having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brethren who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Okay, right, now let's, let's, let's dive in at verse 8. I'll just read this, there's a lot in this. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honourable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, lovely, gracious, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Now, I've never done this before, all right, okay, but, uh, I mean, you're well used to me using illustrations from my many and varied interests, namely Star Trek. Um, but I have another one, all right, because I'm, I'm the only hi-fi buff that this fellowship has got. You know, I mean, I love hi-fi equipment and audiophile equipment and stuff like that. And in order to understand this, we need to apply a principle that exists in the world of hi-fi, and it's the principle that's called rubbish in and rubbish out. And it works basically like this. If you've got a hi-fi system, you've got what's called an hierarchy. 
you've got the source of the turntable that provides the signal. You've got the amplifier, which sorts the signal out and amplifies it. And you've got the speakers, which throw the signal out so you can hear it. Now, the hierarchy means that the further to the front of the chain something is, the better it's got to be. So if you're buying a system, you've got to make sure that your deck is a really good one. Think of it like this. Let's say you've got a really good amp and really good speakers, the real business stuff, but you've got a grotty record deck. Then what happens is that grotty record deck is supplying a really good amplifier and really good speakers with a very poor signal. Therefore, the amplifier amplifies this really bad signal superbly. And the speakers put out this really bad signal superbly. And of course, it sounds atrocious. Can you see the principle? No matter how good an amp or speakers are, if you feed a rubbish signal into them, all they can do is produce rubbish. And in fact, if you've got a bad signal, the better the amp and speakers, the worse it's going to sound. Because you're getting rubbish recreated very, very well. So that's why it's important. It's the deck first, then the amplifier, and then speakers. It's the same with the speakers. You might have superb speakers. You might have a good signal going into a bad amp. But if that bad amp is sending a grossy signal to the speakers, all you're going to hear is rubbish. Now, can you see the principle there? Rubbish in and rubbish out. If you feed rubbish into a good system, all you're going to hear is rubbish. Now, that is exactly what Paul is saying here, although he probably wasn't an audiophile like I am. But that's basically what he's saying here. He's talking about the mind. He's talking about what we think about. And the principle is exactly the same. Rubbish in and rubbish out. If we let rubbish pour into our minds, if we let our minds dwell on rubbish all the time, then if our lives are like loudspeakers, what are we going to do? We're going to generate rubbish to everyone around us. And the truth is that so many things in following the Lord starts in the mind. So what Paul does here is he lists various things that we ought to think about, as opposed to the sort of things that we shouldn't be thinking about. And in effect, what he's saying is, what are we filling our minds with? And this list is the sort of stuff that we ought to make sure our minds are being filled with, rather than all the rubbish that the world is chucking out all the time. Now let's actually go through this list. He says, first of all, because of course verse 8, he says, if there is anything, think about these things. These are the things we ought to dwell upon, alright? Now then, first of all, whatever is true, true. We should think about true things which means we shouldn't think about untrue things. Now, the word here, true, is, is alethis. And what it means is unconfilled, unconcealed, unconcealed, <laughs> got the wrong teeth in tonight, haven't I? It means unconcealed or manifest. If something is made manifest, it's revealed. And uh, it comes from uh, two Greek words, zai, which is always negative, and letho, which is to forget, all right? So it means things not forgotten, all right? Things that are going on in your mind, okay? So true, things that are clear, things that are revealed and manifest. So things that are actual and true to fact, they're good things to think about, i.e., for instance, I mean, this applies in many, many ways, but we must learn not to dwell, for instance, on rumours. 
Now, isn't it true, there's something about our sinful nature when it comes to rumours and gossip, isn't it? I mean, it's hard, isn't it? It's sort of a bit like a, a, bit like a drug, isn't it? You know, that sort of somehow, th th there's always an ear open for a little bit of gossip, a little bit of scandal, isn't there? And you see, the great tragedy is that very often these things that we hear, we don't know whether they're true or not. Now, the point is this, whether it's true or not, unless we know it's merely rumour, it's merely scandal. Now, that doesn't mean that we hold back from thinking about things that are bad which we know are to be true. We've got to be realistic. I mean, for instance, if problems arise in this fellowship, we've got to face it. We don't withdraw like some into this little bubble of, well, I'm only going to believe good things about people, because that would be silly. We all know that we come up with bad things. But the point is that, for instance, if we dwell on rumours and stuff like that, uh, we've had experience here, and not just here, but wherever you go, where you work, all right, poison dripping poison about anybody and everybody. Do you see what I mean? When people drip poison, the whispering behind their back, the little, you know, sort of like assertion, casting aspersions on people's character. Can you see? Uh, poisonous people. We've got to learn not to listen to them because they're going to fill our minds with stuff that isn't true. And Paul says that we should think about things that are true. And it's always worth remembering that a rumour gets halfway round the world before truth has got its boots on. This is a fallen world. That is just a fact. There's something about, as I say, the sinful nature, that the sinful nature loves what are called titbits, don't they? And the definition of titbits is that you don't want to know whether they're true or not. You want to assume that they're true. You don't want to verify them because you'd be disappointed if they weren't. That's the way it works, isn't it? all the gossip and the slander and stuff like that. Anything untrue. And also, uh, before an untruth or a lie or a deception is spoke on, spoken, it's thought up first. Everything we say starts in our minds. Can you see? And so, therefore, if, if we get used to not letting our minds dwell on untruths and that whole area of life, we'll find that our tongues will come more and more under control. But if we walk around uh, with sort of like ears like vacuum cleaners, I mean just like sucking all the dirt in, then we're going to find that if you suck all the dirt in, then your mouth is going to spew it back out. If your ears are the vacuum cleaner on clean mode, then your mouth will become a vacuum cleaner on blow mode. Can you see what I mean? And all that rubbish that's gone in is going to go out again and spread. And so therefore, Paul says, look, learn to think on true things, all right? And if we get our minds used to truth, and remember also the truth of the Word of God. I mean, we grow in the truth. So the more we fill our minds with things that are true, as opposed to things that are probably bad, or the rumours and the gossip, which we'd rather quite like to be true, even though we're not sure. If we dwell on stuff like that, then, as I say, rubbish in and rubbish out. All right, so whatever is true, can you see the whole idea then of thinking on truth, rather than lies and deception and, and stuff like that? Now he says also, whatever is honourable, we must think on honourable things. Uh, the Greek word here is semnos, and it means that which inspires reverence and awe. Now believe me, reverence and awe are well out of fashion today. 
Uh, reverence and awe, really, what we're talking about is respect, intense respect. And it doesn't matter what area of life you look at today, respect is going out of the window. People are showing less and less respect. People are getting ruder and ruder and ruder, all right. Now then, what it means is a sense of gravity and dignity. Um, in order to understand, you know that, that song that came out a few years ago, Girls Just Want to Have Fun, all right? Well, this word semnos means the exact opposite of that, all right? Now, we're not saying that fun and merriment are wrong. They're not. There is a place for having fun. There's a place for merriment and mirth and laughter, assuming, of course, that uh, it's not sinful fun and merriment, because there's a lot of that to be had. But good, wholesome, fun, and that is a good thing. But you see, the point is, life is much more than fun. Can you see? There are many, many things that life is composed of. A balanced life is going to be composed of lots and lots of things. But things go wrong when one part of the picture takes over and gets out of control. And there are some people uh, that all, all they want is fun. And it turns into a kind of an empty-headed fickleness. You see what I mean? Uh, some pe it's, uh, I mean, people like this, you can't get a relationship with them. Can you see? I mean, they're always hiding behind this mask of merriment and stuff like that. Uh, they're never serious. Can you see? Now, the Bible says, well, obviously, there are many serious issues about our lives that we must consider. Life is a serious affair. Uh, now, it's not to say there's no fun. There is fun, and the Lord loves fun. But following the Lord is a serious business, all right? And the serious issues in life have got to be considered seriously. Can you see what I mean? And so, therefore, there's a way of thinking that is sheer empty-headed fickleness. Does everyone know what I mean by that? You know, the kind of the lackadaisical, or, oh, let's just have fun, let's not worry about it, let's get on and enjoy ourselves. You know, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Now, the Bible says that to think like that is spiritual suicide. If that's what we fill our heads with, then that's the kind of life that we're going to live. And we need to, to be thinking about things that are honourable. Can you see, following the Lord is a serious business. Uh, things like respect, honouring people who need honour, cultivating respect for people, whether it's authority as in policemen, magistrates or whatever, or respect for people in the sense that we treat each other and strangers like human beings. Can you see what I mean? You know, so that if you bump into someone walking down the road, you don't turn around and snarl at them. You turn around and say, I'm sorry, pardon me. You see what I mean? And Paul's saying here, make sure that that sense of dignity, that sense of honour, as the Bible calls it, that awe and respect for life itself is there. It's got to be part of our thinking. And it's like even this list, there are things here to be thought about. And we need to make sure that our minds are given over to thinking on the things that really matter, rather than just the things that don't matter at all. I mean, it's like many I mean, you know, many people, they live for Saturday's football match, uh, or they live for Saturday's party, or whatever, or some families, they just live for Sunday dinner as a family. You see, they've they got nothing else. You know, this emptiness 
Whereas the real issues of life get laid to one side because people just get obsessed with the fun stuff, you know, the drive for pleasure, the drive for contentment. You see what I mean? Me, 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 what I can get pleasure rather than, you know, what sort of person ought I to be to fulfil my duty as a human being on this planet. And Paul says, look, honour. Let it be part of your thinking. Fill your mind with honourable thoughts. It makes a difference. And then he says, whatever is just. Fill our minds with just thoughts. Now, the word here is dikaios, and it comes from the noun diki, which is the Greek word for justice. And it means the right and the good. This word represents moral responsibility. All right? Now, the Greeks used this word of the fulfilment of, of sort of duties towards gods and men. I mean, it's like the Greeks believed in loads of gods, so you had to honour the gods as well as the magistrates and stuff like that, all right? And, um, and the whole idea was, was in the thinking, how can I fulfil my responsibility in society? Um, how can I be an influence for righteousness? And one of the things that I've found, if you don't think things like that through, they won't happen in your life, is it? I mean, it's no use just stumbling through life, thinking, oh, well, I mean, whatever situation I get into, I mean, well, I mean, I'll know what to do at the time. You won't necessarily know what to do at the time. And it's a good thing to, to just think about various situations you might get into and to think, how can I be an influence for righteousness in situations such as those. Uh, like the question, how can I live a better life? Now, that is a question that as Christians we ought to occupy ourselves with. And uh, I mean, it's like the, the standard thing that Christians say is make sure you spend plenty of time in prayer and reading the Bible and stuff like that. Yes, 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 no problem. But also, here is something that we ought to be giving time to. I'm not saying that, you know, make sure you have your half hour every day. I'm not saying that. But part of life ought to be considering such things as this. Answering the questions, how can I be the salt of the earth in that situation? You know, that person at work that it's difficult with, or whatever. How can I fulfil righteousness in that situation? The next time they say that to me, what am I going to do? Am I going to growl at them like I did today? No, I better not. Now, how am I going to respond? Can you see? Um, how can I shine as a light in a dark place? What am I going to do the next time that someone comes up and starts gossiping? What am I going to do the next time someone at work comes up and starts uh, you know, telling me dirty jokes? How am I going to handle that in such a way that I don't want to upset or offend them, but I nevertheless want them to know that I don't want that? because that's not in my heart anymore. Can you see, all these questions, just as we go through life, we ought to be giving time to thinking them through. Justice, the right and the good. How can I do the right thing? How can I do the good thing in the various situations that I get into? And, I mean, it's, it, it's like thinking prayerfully. And as these things are thought out, the Holy Spirit will lead you. They'll get sorted out in your mind and you'll suddenly know how to handle situations that before you didn't. All these things need constantly to be thought out so we know what the Lord would have us do. Um, then he says, whatever is pure. Now this word, hagnos, uh, is from the same root as the word holy, hagios. 
holiness. That's really what this word is. Think upon things that are holy. Uh, the word holy in the Greek means uncontaminated. Uh, it means free from defilement, not mixed, all right. Um, and the thing that sort of comes to mind here, I mean, is that obviously there's a, I mean, like for instance, once you get converted, I mean, it's like, you know, the dirty joke sessions tend to end, which is great, which is great. Uh, you don't often find that, that the temptation is to, you know, that you're rushing into work waiting to tell your mates the, you know, this really funny, dirty joke you've heard. That bit tends to go out the window. But where the attack comes is far more subtle. The attack comes in risque humour. It comes in innuendo, in the double entendre. Do you see what I mean? And again, this is something that we need to be careful about. I'm not saying that this is something which overnight, bang, it's gone. But what I'm saying is that in our thinking, we need to be aware of this, to be able to identify it. Um, I mean, think about it. If we get our thinking from the gutter, if that's where we get it from, then gutter talk is what is eventually going to come out of our mouth, isn't it? You see what I mean? Uh, I mean, every time you open your mouth, your mind comes into the open. That should make us careful of what we say. Uh, as a verse in the Old Testament, when King David prays that the Lord will put a guard over his lips. There are a thousand things that we need the Lord to guard our lips from saying. And certainly one of them is this kind of impure talk. All right. Uh, we saw some studies ago, uh, or one study we did, when Paul talks about let no silly or filthy talk come out of your mouth. And that's tremendously important, because if, if that kind of talk is coming out, it's because it's going in. Can you see? It's being dwelt upon. And we just need to, to be before the Lord. And when we find those impure things there, because they're there in all of us in one form or another, we all suffer from it, what we've got to do is to just be lifting that up to the Lord and say, Lord, I, I identify that. I'm sorry. Forgive me. Cleanse my mind from that. Can you see? And so thinking on these things might be, for instance, oh yeah, my thinking there, that's wrong, or yeah, I do tend to get, you know, bit, bit, you know, bit close to being a bit dirty sometimes. So Lord, cleanse me of that. Can you see? This is all tied up on what Paul's, you know, here saying, that we just need to be keeping a guard on what we're actually um, thinking about, because what we think is eventually going to come out into the open. Um, I think it's worth saying as well, in regards to gutter talk, and it's something I feel quite, quite strongly about, uh, it's no use reading the gutter press and then maintaining a standard against gutter talk. Um, you know, I mean, it's just, I mean, if, if you want proof of the sinful nature, all right, look at the newspapers, or rather comics, that are the best-selling newspapers. It's incredible. And what are they full of? Filth, rumour, innuendo, sex, dirt. And yet they're the best-selling newspapers. Well, you can't read, I mean, they're not newspapers, for heaven's sake. I mean, that's what they call themselves, but they're not. But we can't read them, <laughs> can we, and keep our minds free from gutter thinking. Uh, remember, you know, rubbish in and rubbish out. You know, stick to wholesome newspapers. You know, and, uh, you know, right and left wing. It's not just the Times, the Guardian is there, you know. But, I mean, certainly the gutter press. Also, I mean, we need to, um, in regards to this, because, I mean, this gutter humour, all the, you know, the sex talk, I mean, even now, I mean, BBC comedy shows are filth now. I mean, it's, 
it sadly got to the point where you, you can't eat, I mean, unless they start repeating things like the good life, you know, I mean, the stuff that's on now, it, it's filth. And I mean, the fact that it's not blatant dirt, but it's all innuendo and risque humour, that doesn't change it. This is the way the world's going, and we just need to, to kind of just have, have our guard up, all right, in regards to it. Um, rubbish in, rubbish out. So if we're kind of a bit more careful about what goes in, then, you know. Now, I'm going to say at this point as well, uh, because, I mean, normally when you get people dealing with, uh, you know, sort of this part of the Bible, they normally come out with a uh, hundred things that Christians shouldn't watch and don't watch these films, don't watch that film. I'm not going to do that because, as you well know, my belief is that is up to the individual. Each one of us knows what is having a bad effect on us. If something is not having a bad effect on you, it's no problem. Watch it, by all means. I mean, it's like sometimes there, you know, are sort of like things on TV. And maybe there's a smutty remark or two, but it's not all smut. Well, you can sift that out quite easily. So I don't want to get into the kind of the Christian censorship that people get into, but all I'm saying is that we've got to at least bear it in mind, okay, that when we do watch things, when we're exposed to things, okay, then we have got to make sure we're doing a certain amount of sifting out. Can you see? So that the rubbish isn't just going in like a vacuum cleaner, pulling everything in around it, okay. Now then Paul says, whatever is lovely, excuse me, whatever is lovely. Now this, this Greek word is pros philis, uh, and it comes from pros, which means towards, and philio, which is love or tender affection. And it means anything that is pleasing or anything that is agreeable. Uh, that which heightens regard uh, for your fellow man and woman has been created in the image of God. Can you see? Uh, anything that exalts caring, anything that exalts loving people, anything that exalts the idea of looking out for your neighbour, you know, the Good Samaritan served his neighbour, anything that does that and, and throws down and exposes selfishness and greed and trampling all over people, that would come under the category of lovely. Alright? Can you see what I mean? Anything that is lovely. It's kind of how can I be a pleasingly agreeable person? Not in the sense that you've got to agree with everything that everyone says, that's not what I'm meaning. But for instance, how can, how can I be the type of person that even if I disagree with somebody, I'm doing it in such a way, you know, that I'm loving them, even in the disagreement. I'm loving them. I'm not being offensive, I'm not being rude. Can you see? How can I be someone that when people spend time with me, it's always for the better. It always lifts them up a little bit. Can you see what I mean? Anything that is going to lead to us becoming more pleasingly agreeable, well, God's going to bless that. And if we fill our mind more with that, then we'll find that these things that we think about will actually become embodied in the way that we actually live. Because after all, what we set our mind on, these things are the things of Christ. And Paul says, set your mind on the things that are above these things. If we set our mind on these things, it's, it's looking to Jesus in faith. And that faith will eventually materialise into action. And as we dwell on these things, they'll actually become part of us. Um, 
And then he says, if there is anything gracious, I mean, in some ways all these things overlap, you know, uh, but whatever is gracious, euphemos. Uh, you means well, and femos is a saying or a report. And it literally means a well saying. And it means in the Greek, when you utter words of good omen, that's what the word gracious means in the Greek. The idea is when someone comes and they utter words of good omen as opposed to words of doom and gloom or ill omen, all right? And it's that which produces the very best in others, all right? And wants nothing bad to befall them, okay? I mean, it's like, for instance, if you're ever laying awake at night and you can't get to sleep because you're busy winning an argument with somebody, you know, and there you are in your mind, you're sorting them out and you're putting them straight and you're showing them that you was right and they're wrong and my goodness, I'll sort them out next time I see them. That is the exact opposite of graciousness. Can you see? So that graciousness, even if someone has done you wrong, rather than sort of like the next time you see them, you want to put them straight, you want to sort them out, you want your apology because they've wronged you, rather than that, what you're thinking about is now, how can I best approach them to make it easy for them to say sorry? I'm going to love them anyway. I'm going to bless them anyway. Can you see? Rather than wanting something bad to befall them, you know, I'll sort them out, I'll humiliate them, or, or something like that. Graciousness is always wanting the best in somebody. It's wanting the best for them. It's wanting to relate to them in such a way it brings the best out of them. Um, it's, it's not this rather silly, I mean, it's like sometimes you hear people say, you should never think anything negative of anyone. Well, that is actually a very stupid thing to say, and it's not biblical, because that is unrealistic. I mean, we all do bad things. I mean, nowhere does the Bible say that you ought to look at the bad things in me and pretend they're not there. Quite the contrary. Cover them with love, but if I need correcting, you do it. I mean, we can't pretend that, that, that there isn't bad in us. But what I'm saying is that in regards to it, all we want for each other and the people at work, all right, uh, all we want for them is the very best and to bring the best out of them. And we want to relate to them in the gracious way that God relates to us. He doesn't let us have it. He, he doesn't stamp us out of existence. God always remains really affectionate towards us. And so we've got to fill our minds with that kind of thinking, all right? So that whatever situation we're in, whatever way we relate to people, that we're always trying to make sure that what we're doing is going to bring the best out in them rather than the worst. Right, now the next thing that Paul says, anything of virtue virtue. And the Greek word there is arete, and it means moral excellence. Moral excellence. And it's the opposite of any moral looseness or laxity or ethical shabbiness. Anything of moral excellence. Now believe me, there are a thousand ways to stay completely within the law and still be a crook. Now we all know that, don't we? There are a thousand ways to do nothing illegal but still be a crook. It's possible to stay with the letter of the law, but to be breaking the spirit of the law. Can you see? Uh, 
there are shady deals, there are kind of, you know, looseness, a, a kind of, right, well, I'm going for this and the ends justifies the means. I don't mind how I get it. Can you see what I mean? Or there are lots of Christians that they'd never dream, they'd never dream of fiddling their taxes. Oh, no, they're going to pay their taxes, but they will play around with their expense accounts a bit if they're self-employed. Can you see? Now, if we're doing things like that, cutting moral corners, what Paul is saying is that we ought to be thinking on things that are the opposite of that. I mean, say, for instance, in regards to taxes. Now, I mean, I mean this only applies to people who are self-employed. If you've got a doubt in your mind, do it in the tax man's favour. Not in your favour. If you think, oh, should, should that, you know, am I entitled to that or not, give the tax man the benefit of the doubt. Can you see absolutely beyond any kind of finger of suspicion being pointed. And the reason is because obviously we're not interested in Christians as of, you know, in what we can get away with. We want to live morally excellent lives. That is our aim. That is what holiness is because that is what Jesus wants. Now obviously we go through constant, constant failure. I mean the Christian life is continuously picking yourself up after you've fallen flat on your face face. But the point is, we identify what was wrong, we call it what it was, we don't excuse it, and we're heading for the very best, even though we're getting there very, very slowly, and don't seem to be making too good a progress. So anything of moral excellence, alright, and it's like when, uh, if justice is done, uh, if wrongdoers are caught and punished, that is a good thing, we ought to rejoice in that, can you see? Anything that is morally praiseworthy, that's the sort of thing that ought to occupy our mind. And then Paul says, anything worthy of praise. Uh, and anything that can be applauded, anything that can be copied, anything that can receive what Jesus would call the well done thou good and faithful servant. All good things ought to be applauded by us. Whereas all bad things, whatever they are, ought to be shunned by us. All right. And what Paul is saying, that all these things, he says, think on this type of stuff. Don't fill your mind with the opposite, all the shady stuff, all the near-to-the-knuckle stuff, you know, all the, oh, I'll get my own back stuff. Paul says, no, don't dwell, don't think on those things. He says, think on these things. And this word here, think, is logizomai, and it means to reckon or to calculate. All right. And what it's saying is not just think about them as objective ideas. Paul isn't just saying, well, look, you know, take 10 minutes a day and sit down and pick one of them and think on it for 10 minutes. He's not, you know, talking in that sense that it's just ideas flying around in your mind. But what he's saying is reckon, count on the fact that as you think these things, then that is part of the process of the Lord actually working the things out in you. Can you see? There's a very real sense that we will be what we fill our minds with. Can you see? So if we fill our minds with good things rather than bad things, then the Holy Spirit will work into our experience and he will use that as part of the transforming process. So as we start to get a real hold of our thinking in regards to these things, then we'll find that after a while, that change in thinking is changing the way that we live. And it will be, you know, come fairly naturally as well. You'll look back and think, oh yeah, I've changed. Because it's the Lord who's actually doing it. All right. Now in verse 9, now we've seen this in an earlier study, but Paul says, what you have learned 
and received and heard and seen in me do. And the God of peace will be with you. Um, now, back in chapter 3, verse 17, there was a similar verse, and we looked at it uh, in detail then. But what a testimony of God's working in Paul, that Paul could write to a church, and he says, what, how do you live a Christian life? He said, do it just like me. He said, look at me, and listen to me, study me, and copy it and then you'll know you're getting it right. I mean, that's, that's an, I mean, <laughs> I would love to be able to write this to a church, but I couldn't. I'd have to say, yeah, there are some things, but there are other things, don't you dare look at me. <laughs> you don't want to do it like me. Oh, Paul said, look, you know, I mean, this is a mate, he said, just look at me, and that's how you do it. What a testimony, you know, to God working in someone's life. Anyway, in verse 10 he goes on, and he says, I rejoice in the Lord greatly, now that at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Uh, now, I mean, we saw again earlier on in this series the fact that the Thessalonian church had been out of contact with him, and now they're back in contact with him. And, um, you know, and Paul was, was so thrilled. You know, it was just so good to be back in touch with old friends. And this word revived, when he says you've revived, it's anathelo, and it means to blossom, <laughs> you know. And he says, look, you know, your, your concern for me has sort of blossomed, you know, out all over the place. And he says it's absolutely marvellous. I mean, they were just blossoming in their love for Paul. And I mean, that's a lovely thought, isn't it? If only we kept blossoming in our love for each other. You know, sort of like a church of blossoms or something. That'd be absolutely incredible. And in verse 11, he says, Not that I complain of want, for I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. I know how to be abased, and I know how to abound. In any and all circumstances, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and want. I can do all things through him, who strengthens me. Now, when Paul's saying this, he's not, he's not moaning about the lack of what he needs. He, he's, he's making a statement. He says, I know what it is to be in dire poverty. All right. But he's not moaning. What he's saying is, look, there have been times when I've had more than I need. And there have been times when I haven't even been able to eat, you know, because I just haven't had any money, or I've been in jail, or something like that. Okay. And what Paul is saying that whatever situation he's in, and remember, whatever situation he's in, don't forget, it was the Lord who got you there. So that's the important thing. It's the Lord that got you there. All right. Paul says in whatever circumstances he ended up in at any time, he had learned to be content. Content. And this word content is autarkis. Uh, autos, which means self, and archeo, to be enough. And what Paul is saying, look, whatever situation I'm in, I am self-sufficient. And he's not talking about his own strength, but he's self-sufficient because the Lord is with him. And basically what Paul is saying, look, whatever your circumstances, if you've got the Lord, you've got enough. It doesn't matter if you're hungry. It doesn't matter if you, you know, you're in a right old mess and you don't know how God's going to get you out of it. It doesn't matter if you're sitting rotting in jail, and Paul certainly was doing that as he wrote this letter. Paul says, if Jesus is with us, then that is enough for me. And when he says, I know how to be abased, he says, 
I know what it is to be uh, in a situation where I have far less than I need. And he said, and I know how to abound. He said, I know how to be in abundance. I know what it is to have more than I need. Now this tells us something very, very important. It means that the Lord sometimes puts poverty on people, and the Lord sometimes puts riches even on people. I mean, all this rubbish about God wants you rich, uh, or God doesn't want you rich. I mean, Paul says, look, I know what it is to have nothing, and I know what it is to be rolling in it. All right? It's whatever the Lord wants. And he says, whatever situation it is, I've learned to be content. Now, this word, learned here, in the Greek, it's manthano. Now, it's, it's a very specific Greek word for learning. It does not mean to learn by studying. It does not mean that. There's another word for that. This word means to learn by putting into practice. It's the Greek verb which means to learn something through acquiring the habit of doing it. So it's learning through practical experience. I mean, it's like, for instance, when we did French O-level at school many, many moons ago, all right, you've got, like, the written paper and you have the practical, where you go in and you talk. That's what Paul is talking about. He says, I've learned this not by studying, but I've learned this by going through it and getting in the habit of reacting right whatever circumstance I'm in. And also, when he says, I've learned the secret, so he says, I've learned by practical experience, I've learned by doing it, by putting it into practice, the secret. Now then, this word secret is muo, and it means to be initiated into mysteries. Uh, the Greeks loved mystery religions. You know, I, I, I mean, there, there were so many variations on Freemasons, it was amazing. The Greeks loved secret religions, and uh, you could only join these religions if you knew the secret truths that that particular group espoused. And when you came to know these secret teachings, then you were one of the lads. And this is the Greek word that was used, which meant to be initiated into mysteries, all right. So what Paul is saying, he says, I have learned by putting it into practice the secret, the mystery, of being content in all situations. Now what it boils down to is this, what Paul is saying is he says, I did it, I acted content in every situation until I got the light from God to actually be content. Can you see? He said, I did it through gritted teeth until I got a revelation of it, and now it comes naturally. Can you see what Paul is saying there? Do something, do something until a revelation of it comes. And when a revelation of it comes, then it will be second nature to you. Whereas until it comes, it's like swimming against the tide. It seems the most unnatural thing in the world to do. And the truth is that in every area of following the Lord, we struggle on in our own strength until we come into a knowing that it's Him who's living through us. Can you see that? You do it in your own strength, struggle, flat on your face, drown, drowning, going under. You struggle through in your own strength in regards to whatever area it is until a revelation comes. And when it does come, the revelation is it's Jesus who's going to do it. And then you can stop. But until you get that light from the Lord, you just have to keep struggling. Can you see? And that's what Paul's saying. 
I mean, to be content in every situation is about the most unnatural thing anyone could think of. Paul was writing this from jail. How can you be content in jail? That is totally unnatural. So what Paul said, he says, right, in all the situations I get in, which have been bad, I haven't liked them, beaten up, shipwrecked, you name it, going hungry, going without sleep. He says, what I've done is I've made myself keep praising the Lord. I have made myself keep thinking right. Every time I've got discontented, I've repented of it. He says, I've gritted my teeth and I've done it. And I did that until I got a revelation of it. And now it's second nature. Now I see the mystery of it. Can you see? And that's what Paul is saying. And that applies to us. We must struggle on in our own strength until those struggles bring us to the end of ourselves. And then, at the end of ourselves, we find the beginning of Jesus in us. Because that, after all, is the Christian life. It's Christ in us, the hope of glory. And in Hebrews, it says, let us strive, therefore, to enter that rest. The rest is that Jesus has done it all. He's living through us. It's already accomplished. But we must struggle to enter into it. And it's in that struggle that you die. And when you're dead and out of the way, Jesus comes through. Not some all and for once for the rest of your Christian life, but in every area, you know, every door of your life, this has to happen. And that is what the Holy Spirit is doing in, in all our lives. Right, okay, verse 14. <clears throat> he says, Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble, and you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the Gospel, uh, no church entered into partnership with you in giving and receiving, uh, sorry, with me, in giving and receiving, except you only. For even in Thessalonica you sent me help once and again. Now, we covered this in earlier studies, but uh, people don't tend to realise that, I mean, all the years that Paul was like, you know, in full-time service, I suppose would be the cliché people use today, uh, the Philippian church was the only church that supported him. I mean, you tend to get this idea that Paul was the superhero and all the Christians were kind of falling over themselves to be of service to him. Oh, good, Paul's coming, brilliant, you know, how can we bless him? You read through the Acts of the Apostles, you read through Paul's epistles, it was quite the opposite. Most Christians didn't get on with him at all. You know, he had a really hard time. And the reason he kept, you know, in uh, again and again and again, he says, look, I am an apostle. Paul is always demonstrating to people in his letters that he was an apostle. Why was he doing that? Because people didn't believe he was. So, I mean, far from having this universal acceptance amongst Christians that most people think, Paul didn't have that at all. And throughout his long life, the Philippian church was the only church that stuck with him. There were times when Paul was maybe spending a couple of years with various churches, and yet his finances were coming from this church. Uh, it's funny that, you know, I mean, yeah, there are some churches, they like their full-time workers to work for nothing, don't they? You know, but this is quite staggering. And one of the reasons why Paul had such a special closeness to these people. Through his life, they were the only people who regularly supported him financially. And Paul was very, very, you know, grateful for that. And in verse 17, he says, Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit which increases to your credit. Now, I mean, Paul was obvious, I mean, when they sent him money and that, when he didn't have any money, he was obviously grateful, of course he was. I mean, it helps, doesn't it, money? But it wasn't the fact that Paul was interested just in the money. What Paul knew is that the fact that they shared with him 
was part of them maturing in the Lord. And Paul was excited about that. He got excited about their sacrificial giving to him because he knew what a sign of their maturity it was. I mean, it boils down to this, and we've seen it before. Giving money away is good for you. Uh, Guinness isn't. <laughs> but giving money away is. And we saw when we did our, our series about tithing, or rather why, you know, why tithing isn't what God teaches, because it isn't. But we saw that the principle is that giving isn't God's way of raising money, it's his way of raising children. That giving is actually part of our discipleship. But it's got to be free will. It's got to be free will. Uh, just, just go over to one, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 9, and uh, we'll just reaffirm. We've done this before, but we'll just quickly reaffirm here. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, um, uh, just in, in, in verse 1, it's superfluous for me to write you about the offering for the saints. That establishes that these verses are about giving. And uh, we're interested in verse 6 through to verse 12. And Paul says this, he says, the point is this, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. After all, give and it will be given. <laughs> That's what Jesus said, give and it will be given. So, Conversely, don't give and it won't be given, right? So, you know, whether we're spiritually poor or rich is in our hands. He who spares, uh, he, he who sows sparingly will reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must do as he has made up his mind. This is why it's not tithing, because tithing was mandatory, but tithing was Israel's tax system, nothing to do with the church. And he says, is each one has made up his mind, because it's free will, you know, I mean, it's, you know, only give if you want to, it's an important thing. And he says, look, not reluctantly, and uh, sort of like the idea, I mean, I go to the dentist reluctantly, because mm -hmm. I don't like injections in my mouth, that's the meaning of the word. You know, so Paul says, look, you know, if you're giving, and sort of like, you know, you shed a tear with every fiver or tenner you, you you know, you chuck in the box or whatever. He says, if you're doing it cheerfully, don't bother. If it's being done reluctantly, keep it. Uh, he says, not under compulsion. He says, not because you're being pressured. And that's another reason why it's not tithing, because tithing, if something's mandatory, is pressurised, isn't it? Uh, he says, for God loves a cheerful giver. And that word cheerful means hilarious. Uh, people who give their money, not laughing, but crying. Uh, no, sorry, not crying, <laughs> but laughing. That's what he says. And... And he says, and God is able to provide you with every blessing in abundance so that you may always have enough of everything and may provide in abundance for every good work. As it is written, he who scatters abroad, he gives to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. And he says, he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your resources and increase the harvest of your righteousness. Not only can you not outgive God financially, because given it will be given, and that's financial, but the more you give, the more, the more of the righteousness of Jesus eventually comes through your life. That is the incredible thing. I mean, the fruit of giving is actually a holier life, because giving is denial. You know, to, to whatever extent we deny ourselves, to that extent, Jesus lives through us a little bit more. So that's wonderful. He says, you will be enriched in every way for great generosity. I mean, great generosity. 
which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. For the rendering of this service not only supplies the wants of the saints, but also overflows in many thanksgivings to God. And so what Paul is saying there, look, you can't outgive God, uh, you know, but I mean the point is it must be done willingly, okay? And why Paul was so thrilled in regards to, you know, to these people is that over the years they had given to him so sacrificially that Paul knew that they were just growing and growing and growing in the Lord. Because, I mean, they wouldn't have been rich people. Some of them had been very poor. But the point is they gave and gave and gave. And Paul knew that they were growing and growing and growing. And that is what he was so thrilled about. The maturity that was coming from the type of giving they were actually doing. And so Paul was getting really excited about that. And then down into verse 18, all right, uh, and here we're coming on to a verse that has been so abused by Christians, it's amazing. He says, I have received full payment and more. I am filled, having received from Epaphroditus, do you remember Epaphroditus? We saw him in the earlier studies. The gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice, because that's what it was. You know, I mean, it's like, um, how can I say it? If you've got 200 pounds in your pocket and no bills to pay and you chuck five pounds in, that's not a sacrifice. It's giving, but it's not a sacrifice, can you see? And Paul's saying their giving was sacrificial, all right, and pleasing to God. And then this verse here, and my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Now then, it's this verse here, my God shall supply all your need. I mean, this has got to be up there with the top ten most abused verses in the entire Bible, all right? And because, uh, yeah, of course, there's the prosperity teaching around today. Uh, you know, of course, uh, I mean, you know, basically goes, God wants you to be rich. But we've seen that, I mean, there were times when God wanted Paul to be poor. It's ridiculous to say God wants everyone to be rich. I mean, it's crazy because he wants some to be rich, some to be poor. and. Also, you, sometimes you can be poor and sometimes you can have more than enough. So you can't make a flat statement, God wants people rich. I mean, it's crazy. He might, he might not. But the prosperity teachers say that you can know how close you are to God by how prosperous you are, you see. And uh, so they say, look, God, he's promised here to provide all your needs. So, if you need a bigger car, well, you ask him and you believe it, he'll give it to you. Can you see? This is the prosperity teaching. And of course, the way it works is they say, but give and it shall be given. So what you do is you send all your sacrificial gifts to the teacher who's teaching prosperity, you see? So he's saying, if, if God wants you to be rich, you want a bigger car? Right, you've got it. Right. But the Bible says, and here's the condition, folks, they say, you've got to give first. So therefore, you send your pledge to me. And, of course, the way it works is the prosperity teachers say, look, I've proved it. I've proved it, they say. Look how prosperous I am. But, of course, the point is they've got an audience of thousands of people all across the world sending them loads of money. And, I mean, it's a really sort of like wicked little catch that they come up with. Uh, but, of course, this verse completely gives the lie to it. Because here, when Paul says, my God will supply all your need, now that is a biblical promise. But what is the condition of that promise? Because we've seen this, haven't we? Uh, loads of times in the past that many of the promises of God, not all of them, but many of the words of God and the promises in the Bible are conditional. And if you don't fulfill the condition, 
you won't get the promise. But if you fulfill the condition, you will receive the promise. Now then, this promise of God supplying all your need, the condition is the sacrificial giving of verse 18. Is he? The Philippians were giving until it hurt. But because of that, God was providing for them miraculously. You see, that's the point. It's not a question of, oh Lord, I don't think I've got enough, I will pray for some more. I mean, no, not at all. This promise, my God will supply all your need, is when you've given until it hurts, when you've given and through obedience to God, you've got in a situation where you need his supply, his supply will be there. Is he? But this isn't a pretext, you know, for deciding that, you know, like the three-bedroom house isn't big enough, I'm going to claim a four-bedroom one. You know, and verses like this. No, no. It's the fact that when we've given ourselves into a situation where we need God to act for us, God will most definitely act on our behalf. Right, okay, and then verse 20, coming right up, right up to the end now. He says, to our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Glory to God. I mean, it was always on Paul's lips. You know, I mean, Paul didn't want glory for himself. He just wanted everyone to realise that the glory was God's. He didn't want people looking at him. He wanted people looking at the Lord. And... Um, you know, often when people say glory to God, it, you know, if, if you're in a meeting and say glory to God, someone you're like, hallelujah. But not many people actually know what hallelujah means. It's a Hebrew word and it means praise ye Yah. Yah is the Hebrew name for God. That's, you know, hallelujah means praise God. Well, just thought I'd chuck that in, all right? Now, then, verse 21 to 22, he says, Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brethren who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. Now, we saw this at the start of the letter, but we see it at the end as well. He says here, greet every saint. He says, I want you to say hello to everyone in the church for me. All right? It's Paul's really personal touch. Can you see, it's not greet, you know, greet the leaders, but don't worry about the plebs. But you see, that sadly is what leaders today very often are like. You know, they they kind of, the leaders will stick together, but they're not in there with the plebs. I mean, a lot of leaders of a lot of churches, I mean, they, you know, they don't know their people really well, because, I mean, most of their time is spent with other leaders, can you see? And all the rage today is in a local area, all the leaders of different churches, all right, the churches come together, you know, I mean, they do lots and lots together and what happens is that all the leaders they have their special meetings and times together so the leaders are only relating to other leaders and of course underneath you've got all the plebs and the leaders hardly even know the plebs Paul was not like that greet every saint Paul saw you know Paul saw no divide he wasn't a leader and they're the plebs Paul didn't think like that Jesus didn't think like that Jesus came not to be served but to serve that's tremendously important, because sadly, so many leaders in the church say the opposite. You know, they'd be greeting, you know, send greetings to your prophet, and greet the church evangelist and stuff like this, and oh, what wonderful ministries they've got. And you can see, if you read books, all right, I mean, you get all the leaders, they read books, and they're always paying tribute to each other in each other's books. You know, the big national, always praising each other up and stuff like that. You know what I mean? They're, they're flying high. They're not in touch with the plebs anymore. Paul was not like that in the slightest, and I mean, we've all got to, I mean, and you don't have to be a leader to be like that either. You don't have to be a leader to be like that either. 
uh, there are many Christians who are leaders, all right, but they desperately want to be in with the leaders. You see, they, they're just as bad, you know, and they're always, like, sucking up to the leaders, thinking, oh, if I can get in with the leaders, you know, and they've got you on pedestals, and they think, oh, if I can get in with the leader, and they, you see, their thinking is the same as the big leaders who put themselves on pedestals. We're just us. Leadership is functional. It's not a position. Leaders are no different from the people they lead. It's merely a function. And Paul, this kind of... I mean, Paul was a man for the people because he was a people. Can you see what I mean? This divide between leaders and led didn't exist in Paul's mind at all. And then he goes on to say, and everyone here greets you as well. And uh, then verse 23, the last verse, he says, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. And I don't know if you remember, uh, but when we did the very first study, we saw that uh, Paul started off the letter by writing to them and sending them the grace of the Lord Jesus as well. And this is really lovely because this letter, it starts with grace and it ends with grace. Paul opens it by talking about the grace of God and he closes it by talking about the grace of God. And from start to finish, this letter is grace. And of course, we've seen that grace, G-R-A-C-E, is God's riches at Christ's expense. Grace is undeserved kindness. Grace is that God, knowing that we didn't deserve it, loved us anyway, saved us anyway, brought us into his family anyway. And it's grace, grace, grace undeserved kindness we deserve nothing from God and yet he gives us everything that is what grace is and of course elsewhere Paul says by grace you have been saved through faith and the Christian life like this letter is grace from start to finish you were converted and became a Christian by God's grace when you die and go to heaven and finish your Christian life in that sense because you'll be going from earth to heaven that will be by the grace of God and everything in between is the grace of God and the fact that some fall away and us lot obviously haven't at least yet, I hope we never do but the best we can say is we haven't yet that also is by the grace of God from start to finish it's the grace of God and that is what Paul starts the letter on and that is what he ends it on, the grace of of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Because grace is what Jesus is. His whole nature is summed up in grace. He gives and gives and gives and gives and gives, even though we don't deserve it. And one of the things we've seen throughout the letter is that the burden of the letter is unity. Unity between the people in the church. Now, how do you get unity? You get unity when you have a group of people that each one, their attitude and outlook is, I'm going to give and give and give and give, whether I think other people deserve it or not. When everyone is trying to outgive each other, you will have unity. But when you get the attitude of take, 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 take come in, that is what destroys unity, and then you get the arguments, the bad feelings, the bitterness, etc., etc. And what Paul is saying is, look, God, by his grace, has saved us. And because he lives in us, because Jesus lives in us, we are full of the grace of God. 
And what Paul is saying, let that grace out. The grace that we have received from God, the love that we have received from God, we now want to give that out so that we're giving it to each other. And when a community of people are living like that, then unity is what you're going to get. Right, so uh, here endeth Paul's letters, letter to the Philippians.